Anyone love roller coasters? Oh, a few of you. All right, great. There's something about that very first rise, that climb up the hill, a sense of anticipation. There's nervous energy as the endorphins start to kick in and begin to race. And then you have that spectacular view as you rise higher and higher, and you can see the amusement park from above. Your adrenaline's pumping. There's a tinge of fear. But you know that you're ultimately safe in the coasters, in the roller coasters design. Even though you don't know who the designer is, you trust that unknown designer's plans for his roller coaster. Have you ever had a similar experience in your walk with God? Perhaps it's when you were a new believer and life suddenly seemed fresh, it seemed new, it was exciting. There was the excitement of knowing you were walking with the Savior, learning new things. Every song on WJTL spoke to your heart and you'd find yourself weeping with joy even when navigating the awful traffic in Lidditz on weekends. The adrenaline was pumping as you started learning about Jesus' love. Life was thrilling. You loved hanging out with your new friends at church and discovering meaningful relationships, and that relationship was just climbing higher and higher, and just when you thought life couldn't be any better, just like, like when that roller coaster reaches the pinnacle, the top, everything falls apart. Spiritual life drops out. I blew it again. God must hate me. I'm a failure. I haven't changed at all. I'm a fraud, I'm a hypocrite, and there it is, folks, the mistake of believing. It's what we've been considering the last two weeks, the mistake of believing. I, I do want to give a shout out to Joy and Quinn for opening with that song, uh, God of Angel Armies. When I was in one of those low places in my life, God used that song over and over. It seemed like every time I turned around and was, was hating on myself, I'd hear that song and was reminded that the Lord of Angel Armies was king of my life. And so thank you for, for opening with that song this morning. I want to take you back this morning to 875 B.C., and I want to introduce you to a guy who could easily have been Time Magazine's He would have been featured on every late night talk show. The guy was riding high. He was at the peak of his career. Headline, profit controls the weather. Or it might have shouted out, ravens feeding man. What's that all about? Or how about miraculous recipe for oil 
and flour. Another headline, miracle, a boy raised from the dead. Another one might be showdown, showdown with Baal's priests. How about this one? Headline, fire falls from the sky. And a final one, weather forecast, rain, finally. Recognize any of that? If you grew up in a Sunday school, you probably know that I'm talking about the prophet Elijah. He was part of the big four. They were mentioned most frequently in both the Old and New Testaments. You have your Abraham, Moses, David, and Elijah. So even if you know about Elijah, let me refresh your memory based on those headlines. First, in the northern kingdom of Israel, Elijah's ministry centered around a place called Samaria and the rule of one guy by the name of King Ahab. Twice in the Old Testament, Ahab is listed as the most wicked king in Israel's history. Our story begins with Ahab marrying a pagan princess named Jezebel, who worshipped Baal. Now, let me just tell you, there were a lot of pagan gods in this time period. Baal was the chief. He was sometimes called the god of thunder. He was the head honcho. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, also worshipped a goddess by the name of Ashtoreth. She was the goddess of fertility. Now, Idolatry is bad enough, but Baal worship and Ashereth worship, these religions were basically a religion of illicit sex and pornography with both female and male prostitutes slash priests. Did I mention that the worship of Baal and Ashereth also involved human sacrifice, notably sacrificing children. And so it's in this environment that Elijah begins his meteoric rise. Interestingly, we don't know anything about Elijah's early years. We don't know anything about his background. Kind of know where he came from, but that's about it. How in the world did this man end up in King Ahab's court? Well, I'd like to think it begins with his name. Remember, in Old Testament times in particular, names meant a great deal to people. Names revealed a great deal about a person's character. And in this case... Elijah's name means, quite literally, my God is Jehovah. My God is Jehovah. So an introduction to this theme of misbelief, I want to think again about these headlines that I mentioned earlier, starting with the first one. 
We're not going to look at all the scriptures this morning because we would be here till tomorrow at this time if we did. But I'm going to go through them just to refresh your memory for those of you that know all about Elijah. The first one would be the prophet controls the weather. You'll read about it in 1 Kings 17.1. Elijah confronts this evil king and states, I solemnly swear as the Lord God of Israel, whom I serve, lives, there's not going to be any rain during the next few years unless I say so. Can you imagine being that devoted to the living God, being that strong in your faith that you could command a drought? The second headline we would read about him is that uh, ravens feed man. Again, 1 Kings 17, 2 to 6. It stopped raining. Elijah prayed. Told the king it was going to happen. Rain stopped. Drought came. Food and water were scarce. But God had Elijah's back and sent him to the river Cherith where God himself provided Elijah with both food and water. Speaking of a rush... Knowing God himself was caring for Elijah had to be astonishing. And Elijah's rise to prominence as the news got around about all of this, as the news got around, his prominence as a prophet was only beginning to rise higher. Rain had stopped, but Ahab had not repented. He hadn't destroyed the Baal worship. Nor had he removed the Asherah poles that were used to worship Ashtoreth. Idolatry was everywhere, and the land was dying from drought, both literal and spiritual. Third headline, miraculous recipe for oil and flour. And that should actually be 1 Kings 17, 8 through 15. Elijah approaches a widow with a young son. And request bread. <laughs> that took guts. I mean, there's no flour. There's, there's no oil. The land's in drought. Uh, flour is hard, perhaps impossible to find. Yet this widow takes the last bit of her remaining flour and oil and bakes bread for the prophet. And Elijah prays again. This time he's praying that her oil and flour continue to flow and pour during this time of drought. That's pretty cool. Unfortunately, sometime later, that widow's son dies. And again, Elijah prays. Next headline, boy raised from the dead. 1 Kings 17, 16 to 24. Speaking of a mountaintop experience, that had to be pretty amazing, right? Ahab and his wife Jezebel, however, still haven't repented, even though word had to have gotten back to them that a boy had been raised from the dead. These, these things didn't happen every day. Uh, but Ahab, Jezebel, they still hadn't removed the idols from the land. Drought continued. And on top of it, not only had they not repented, they had gone out and killed many 
of God's servants. Notwithstanding, Elijah calls for a showdown, a showdown with Baal's priests, and you'll read about that in 1 Kings 18, 18 to 28. There have been three years of drought. Remember, Elijah had stood in front of King Ahab and said, I solemnly swear, as the Lord God of Israel, whom I serve, lives, there will be no rain during the next few years unless I say so. It's safe to say he's not exactly a welcome presence in the king's court. In fact, if you read 1 Kings 18, you'll discover that Ahab himself had been looking for Elijah. He doesn't want to have tea and crumpets. He wants to kill Elijah. He wants Elijah dead. Other prophets have been murdered by the king and the queen. I, I love the chutzpah that Elijah has. Ahab hadn't called for him. Elijah summons Ahab. That takes, that takes conviction, that takes guts, that takes strength uh, to call for the guy that you know wants your head. So Ahab and his 850 priests are gathered at Mount Carmel with Ahab. The goal, Elijah's, they're meeting with Elijah. The goal is to see whether Baal or Jehovah God reigns. The deal is to see whether one of those gods, Baal or Jehovah, would send fire to burn a sacrificial bull. The altars are built, the bull is slaughtered, and the priests of Baal begin to call on their idol. As the day goes on, they become more and more frenzied. They're crying and screaming, cutting themselves with knives, daggers, and spearheads. There's blood flowing everywhere. Nothing happens. Well, something does happen. That's about the time that Elijah starts making fun of them. Is your God sleeping? Maybe your God's going to the bathroom, only causing more frenzy among the priests. But then... It's Elijah's turn. Calmly, he constructs an altar. Twelve stones honoring the twelve tribes of Israel. And he doesn't stop there. He calls for buckets and buckets of water to drench the slaughtered bull laying on the altar. It's almost as if he's adding insult to injury to these priests by adding that water. He's adding gallons and gallons of water during a time of drought. Elijah knows his God can replenish the earth with water. It's in this drenching of the sacrifice and his prayer, Elijah's prayer, that he gives honor to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And headline... Fire falls from the sky in 1 Kings 18, 30 to 40. And with that victory, Elijah slaughters the priests of Baal. 
We don't know the details of how, how this happens. Scripture says it's true. I believe it. But shortly after that, just as he forecasts drought, Elijah sends a message to Ahab. Brother, get ready. There's a monsoon coming. Weather forecast? Rain. Finally. Well, Ahab gets in his chariot, starts her up, but Elijah is already running ahead of him. Destination, approximately 31 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. I don't know about you, but I've never run a marathon. I kind of doubt that Elijah was a trained marathon runner. So let's just assume for a moment that he was running in a downpour of rain for approximately the six hours it would have taken to go that distance. Oh, while being chased by a horse-drawn chariot. All of this, all of these headlines that we just talked about, running, exhausted, following three years where he is the prophet of the moment. Elijah has reached the top of the hill, the peak, the pinnacle. His ministry is successful in capital letters. He's reached the top of his ministry. And that, my friends, is my rather lengthy opening to this morning's message. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19, 1 to 5. And if you don't have a Bible, this would be a good time to remind you that we'd love to give you one. They're available at the Welcome Center in the lobby, so grab one as you leave this morning. But the scripture is going to be available on the screen. 1 Kings 19, 1 to 5. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Okay, folks, I want you to look real carefully at what I just read and think about the reality of what we know. Jezebel threatens to kill Elijah. She threatens to kill the man who had just stood face to face with the king, King Ahab, her husband. Elijah had just faced 800 plus bad priests of Baal. Again, face to face. But neither the king nor those priests attempted to kill him. And now the queen threatens and Elijah scurries away in fear. So let's continue reading. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day 
he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Now catch this. After running probably 30-plus miles, Elijah runs again, this time probably around 100 miles, assuming that he was running from Jezreel. Had he gone to Samaria, the distance would have been even closer to 800 miles. The point being, the dude is tired. During the drought, nobody was eating well. The man was likely not nourished as well as he might have been. Yes, he had the bread and the oil that the, the lady made for him. Uh, but he was probably not that well nourished. And he was, he was in fear for his life. He probably wouldn't have stopped anywhere along the way to grab a sandwich. He was hungry. He had left his companion behind, and he's out in the wilderness. So he's lonely. He's angry, probably because he anticipated a different outcome on Mount Carmel. Maybe he thought a revival would follow the events on Mount Carmel. For certain, he's got a mistaken belief system. He thinks he's no better than his ancestors. He's comparing himself to others. God, take me now, he prays. Basically, a prayer of suicide. God, take me now. Ever feel like that? Ever feel your spiritual life, your life's journey, is one big roller coaster ride of ups and downs? I'm just a failure. God, take me now. <laughs> Am I the only person within the sound of my voice that has felt that way? Perhaps felt that way often. I'm going to be honest with you all this morning. Today's message is really for those of you who are believers, those of you who are followers of Jesus, your sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This message is for those of you who from time to time think you've blown it. This is a message about the mistake of believing we are failures. All too often, when we reach that point, we are very much like Elijah. We look around, and we start comparing our journey to those around us. There are so many things we can learn from Elijah's mistaken belief. One thing we dare not do is to take them lightly. Elijah the man, was physically exhausted. He was emotionally drained. I'm not certain if this phrase is used any longer, but let's just put it out there that this man was seriously burnt out. In his exhausted state, he wasn't thinking right. The intensity of living on the razor's edge had been too great and his logic plummeted. All he knew 
was according to 19.4, and that was he was done. It was the last straw. Elijah was tired, he was angry, he was hungry, he was lonely. And any of you who have ever spent any time in pretty much any kind of counseling will likely recognize the acronym H-A-L-T. The man was hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And all four of those equal a perfect storm. He feels washed up, and he collapses under a tree and asks God to take him and falls asleep. We would do well to take note of the sequence. He prayed, God take me. wasn't a great prayer, but it was blunt. And though misguided, Elijah was going to his maker and saying, here, God, I'm done. And he sleeps the sleep of the exhausted. Probably wasn't a great sleep, but it appears that it was a sound sleep because he doesn't wake on his own. It takes the nudging of an angel preparing breakfast and telling him to get up, eat. Remember, hungry, tired. So he eats a meal provided by God himself. And then he falls asleep again. The guy's really dead. He's tired. 1 Kings 19, 7-9 reads, The angel of the Lord came back and woke him up again. The angel said, Get up and eat, or your journey will be too much for you. And so he got up, ate, and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and nights until he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. While Elijah may have believed he was washed up, believed he was a failure, God saw him differently. Yeah, the prophet was exhausted, and God provided the necessary medicine, food and hydration slash water, and sleep. He did that before sending him on yet another trip, this time to a mountain, and not just any mountain, folks. It was the mountain where Moses met God face to face, the mountain where God handed Moses the tablets of stone inscribed with the Ten Commandments, and following this 40-day journey, Elijah sleeps again. This time to be awakened by the voice of God himself asking a simple question. Then the Lord spoke his word to Elijah. He asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? And in verses 10 through 13 of 1 Kings 19, Elijah answers, Lord God of armies, I have eagerly served you. The Israel wept and stand in front of the Lord on the mountain. 
when we're on the mountaintop, you can see far and wide. But we can't always see the details. We can't always see the reality that we might see if we were down in the valley. In this instance, God himself wants to refocus Elijah's vision. And in doing so, he reveals himself to Elijah. Continue reading. As the Lord was passing by, a fierce wind tore the mountains, shattered rocks ahead of the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was a quiet, whispering voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat, went out, and stood at the entrance of the cave. Yeah, there's fire, wind, and earthquakes. But this hurting, hungry, angry, tired man, this prophet Elijah, needed the quiet, nurturing Abba, Daddy, voice of God. Look what happens next. It's an exact repeat of the previous verses. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What God asked him previously. And he responds. Elijah responds exactly the same way. But I suspect there was a different tenor in his voice. Elijah answered, Lord God of angel armies, I have eagerly served you. The Israelites have abandoned your promises, torn down your altars, and executed your prophets. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to take my life. Elijah was tired, angry, hungry, and now he reveals one more thing. He's lonely. And the next few verses, God points out that, no, Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 more God-fearing men in Israel. And by the way, I've got news for you. I'm sending you to a brother who you're going to mentor, and his name is Elisha. There's much we can learn from Elijah's journey. As children growing up with the story of Elijah, it would have been easy to get caught up in all the spectacular, dramatic headlines of that story. Indeed, 
we would likely lose sight of the simple message. When we have those down in the dumps, dark nights of the soul, when we question God with words like, what am I doing here? Or how did I get from up there to down here? Rather than immediately spiritualize things, perhaps we need to take a step back and look at our and emotional limitations. Taking care of ourselves important. Many of us are way overworked. We're way overstressed. As I was preparing for this morning, I and I, I, I wish I had the guy's name that said it, but I want to repeat it, it because I love what he has to say. And it's this. Scheduling adequate sleep, relaxation, etc., is not a sinful luxury. It is a stewardship responsibility so we can be healthy, long-term servants of God and his people. Oh, the mistake of believing we are failures. We're tired, weary. Man, I failed again. Same mistake, same sin patterns. Gave into an addiction. I'm a loser. This, the mistake. we're failures sometimes we're angry we're angry at ourselves we're angry at the world around us angry and wondering why we're still struggling with whatever fill in the blank we're mistakenly believing we're failures likely because we're starving starving for the bread of life Starving for lack of nourishment from God's word. Starving to hear God's voice. Starving because, frankly, we haven't been spending time with God. I'll spend six hours online and then fall asleep while giving God three minutes at bedtime. We're also lonely. We isolate ourselves and listen to the voices in our heads that lie to us. Lie and tell us we can't. We're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and we just need to halt, H-A-L-T. I need to remind those lying voices in my mind that it's not about me. It's about Jesus, and it's always been about Jesus. He's the one who chose us and called and drew us to himself. He's the one who purchased us by dying a sacrificial death to redeem us for the Father. Jesus, he's the one who guaranteed our eternity by defeating death, hell, and the grave. He's the one who calls us new creations. He's the one who says we are complete 
in him. He's the one who calls us his children. He's the one who says, I am free and that our bodies are his temple. He calls me safe and victorious. Many times, I've been living on a roller coaster all too often, all too frequently. How about you? As believers, isn't it about time we put aside the sin of misbelief and trust the God who says we are free? The next time I find myself at a low point, I need to remind myself what God asked Elijah. What are you doing here, Foreman? What are you doing here? Of course, God knew all about Elijah's hurts. And God is helping in the passages that we looked at this morning. God is helping Elijah process. And then God proceeds to remind Elijah that it is he, almighty God, who will continue his work through Elijah, then Elisha, and others. As I stated earlier, this message is quite frankly for those who have trusted Jesus for their salvation. For those of you who have labored, been involved in ministry, and put it bluntly, perhaps you're tired. You're exhausted. And perhaps you aren't seeing the results you've anticipated from your ministry work. Well, we can learn from Elijah's example, a far better guide would be learning from Jesus. Our Savior was surrounded by those who drained his energy. Mark 6, 31, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go off by ourselves. Let's go where it's quiet and rest. Elijah had Ahab and Jezebel seeking to destroy him. Jesus had religious leaders, Rome, and the very powers of darkness seeking to destroy him. Jesus knew when it was time to take a nap. He rested. Knowing his time had come to a, was coming to an end, Jesus eats. He prepares his body physically by eating and drinking at the Last Supper. And don't forget, he's with people. He's with his friends. He's not alone. As he prepares for the pinnacle moment, the primary moment for which Jesus was born, he's been fed, he's celebrated the Passover meal, he's surrounded by loved ones, and then he goes off to seek communion in prayer. While it's unfortunate, it's also true. The enemy likes to attack us. And it's surprising how frequently this happens following spiritual victories. There's an old, old hymn whose lyrics I'd like to close with. They go like this. Oh soul, are you tired? Are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness, you see? There's light for a look at the Savior. There's life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth 
will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Worship team, would you come and lead us in a song?